This is Norm Diamond. I'm in the studio this morning with my usual and longtime producer, Patricia Kohlberg. But Patricia is here for a different purpose this morning. Today is the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, on abortion. We're going to take a look back at the history of abortion in Oregon specifically and talk about some of the lessons, perhaps, for our current struggles. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning, and thanks for having me on. Patricia was a medical doctor for 20 years, was medical director of Multnomah County here in Oregon. She's the author of a wonderful set of memoirs on the ragged edge of medicine, and as well, and very much to the point today, the author of an acclaimed novel, Girl in the River, that looks back, among other things, at the the history of abortion. It touches on access to abortion and suppression of that access here in Portland during the, well, from the 30s into the 1950s. So maybe start us out, Patricia, with a look back at the history of abortion, both its legal possibilities, but of course that doesn't, that doesn't really cover um, the access that women had and were denied. Well, that's right. And when I was researching for my novel, Norm, one of the things that struck me was that in the entire century leading up to Roe v. Wade, abortion was illegal in Oregon. And during that whole time, however, women sought and got abortions, not only from lay providers, but also from licensed physicians. In other words, the fact that it was illegal did not necessarily stop women from getting abortions. Even though the laws never changed during that period of time, what is interesting to me was how much the practice of abortion was either tolerated or was suppressed. For example, there was a five-year period uh, early in the 20th century during the progressive era when there was a five-fold increase in the prosecution of abortion providers. This is the progressive era. That's right. And they're suppressing abortion. The progressive movement was largely a white middle-class anti-corruption movement, and there were many in that movement, particularly women, who viewed abortion as a vice. And so they were anti-abortionists, even though they might be feminist in other ways. Well, we're um, going to have to think then of progressive in quotes from now on. Yes, we are. Uh, and then during World War II, abortions were readily available and safe abortions, uh, mostly provided by doctors. And then right after the war, of course, the worst crackdown on the availability of abortion appeared since it had been made illegal in Oregon. So I thought that was very interesting, and I kind of wanted to understand what was going on that created those differences. So again, the legal status stayed the same That's right. for a long period. Okay, so our question then is, what were the factors that, that varied? Because we know that access to abortion varied so much during that period. Well, there were a number of players. One of the biggest was, in fact, the medical establishment. 
There were certain politicians, there was the legal establishment, there were churches, there were feminist activists, all these folks played a role. And then, of course, there were social and economic factors that shaped public attitudes about abortion, and these attitudes, in turn, shaped the legal response to abortion. So it's a very complicated story, and what I wanted to start out with, because of their very central role, was the medical establishment. And their varying attitudes and varying influence as well, and varying drives, I take it. Right, and I should say at the outset that there wasn't necessarily a a correspondence between the medical leadership and the actual rank and file, if you can call them that, doctors. Those interests were not 100% aligned. I want to go back to the abortion law that was enacted here in 1854 in Oregon, and it was part of an AMA, or American Medical Association, campaign that was aimed at the suppression of midwifery. And what the profession was trying to do at that time was establish their professional control over all aspects of healthcare, and midwives were a big competitor for them. So they made it illegal here in Oregon in 1854, abortion that is. But up until the 20th century, there were very few actual prosecutions. And that was largely because of ambiguities in the law. But let me say that during that time, white and wealthy women mostly got their abortions from doctors and the poor and women of color were getting their abortions from unlicensed providers. Just to clarify one thing, I've associated my own perhaps limited understanding midwifery with delivering babies. So midwives also were doing abortions. Oh yeah, they provided really the the majority back in the 19th century, the majority of reproductive care for women, even for uh, wealthy women. And so they were the ones who were familiar with women's bodies, with instrumentation of women's bodies, and they were the ones that were intimate with women and were willing to provide those abortions. And doctors cementing their role in kind of the hierarchy of medical caregivers then wanted to to suppress that practice on the part of, of midwives. That's right. And so what you find during this period that when there were prosecutions, it was primarily when the woman was single even though most abortions were performed on married women. The prosecutions also focused almost exclusively on the unlicensed lay providers, not on doctors. And they also happened primarily when the woman died. And then we get to the progressive era. And during that time, there was a renewed AMA campaign to drive out so-called quacks from their ranks, including the abortionists. Anyone who wasn't a a licensed doctor, in other words. Well, or people that they considered to be the rogue practitioners, even if they were licensed. And what is interesting is that the prosecutions during this particular roughly 20-year period were nearly all of licensed doctors not the unlicensed practitioners. The one other thing I want to mention during that era was the 1910 Flexner Report. And this was a very influential report that 
looked at the training and licensure and oversight of physicians that sought to professionalize the practice of medicine. And it very explicitly called for the banning of midwifery practice altogether. They managed that or pursued that through various public campaigns. And the result of that was that in 1900, where half of women in America were getting their babies delivered by midwives, by 1920 or so, that had dropped to 15%. So their campaign was successful. They got what they wanted. And so by the 1920s, Organized medicine really wasn't so interested in suppressing abortion anymore. Anymore. That's really interesting. So cementing their role, again, at the top of the hierarchy, doctors drew on both the criminal justice system and on public relations campaigns. Yeah, exactly. So do you have a question? I mean, you can pursue the history, but I was going to ask about the response to all that and the role played especially by feminists? Well, feminists played a big role. One of the early abortion providers in Portland was Marie Equi, who was allied with anarchists and labor interests in Portland, and she provided abortion services to poor women and working women, and she often provided them for free, and she was part of a small group of women physicians who were providing reproductive services for all women. And this kind of inaugurated what I think of as the golden age of abortion in Portland, when most of the abortions were being provided by skilled, licensed physicians. And it was a time during which those doctors were refining their techniques The suction technique that is the standard in abortion care now was actually invented at that time by a Portland physician by the name of George Watts. The other thing that happened during during that time is the expansion of the idea of a therapeutic exception, which had been written into the 1854 law, which meant that you could legally provide abortion if it threatened the woman's life. But during the 20s and 30s, this so-called therapeutic exception was expanded to include social factors, like if the woman had too many children, if she was had an abusive husband, if um, she was too poor. So one consequence of that is that during that time, the complication rates from abortion dropped way down. And if you looked at the women who were hospitalized for complications related to abortion, two-thirds of them were women who had attempted to abort themselves. And the other third were primarily due to unlicensed providers. And so you had a, a, this kind of golden age of, of abortion, which continued until the post-war crackdown and the election of the mayor known as Dottie Duguid Lee. So golden age, you're thinking of as defined in at least a couple of ways. One was access, but the other was the vast increase in safety of the medical procedure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Portland was um, a little unusual during that era in the very low numbers of complications that, of abortion and the very low uh, number of deaths from abortion. Okay, well, I know about Dottie Do Good Lee and the 
access to abortion that she railed against, campaigned against, primarily from your novel. So, <laughs> right. so fill us in. Before I talk too much about Dottie Duguid Lee, I want to go back and pick up the story because there are some other women activists that, that fit into this story. And the first one I want to mention is a Dr. Esther Pohl, who was health officer for Multnomah County in 1907. And she was a, an important uh, suffragist, but she was also one of those progressive era politicians who saw abortion as a vice that threatened the social order and the lives of poor women. And she was instrumental in one of the very first prosecutions of an abortionist who was responsible for the death of a 25-year-old woman back in the early 1900s. And then there were other physicians, women physicians, with a very different attitude about abortion, including Dr. Marie Equi, whom I mentioned before. But she and the group of women that she, doctors that she was allied with, interestingly enough, were not very active in terms of promoting access to abortion rights because it really, really wasn't much of an issue in Portland. What they were mostly active around was to get birth control legalized. Now, birth control wasn't exactly illegal during that time. You could buy a condom and use it. But there were these Comstock laws that were passed in the 19th century, which outlawed the transport of any kind of pornographic material, which included any kind of birth control device across state lines. And as you can imagine, that really suppressed the access to birth control devices. So most feminists were involved in the campaigns to help legalize birth control. No one had much of a stake in suppressing abortion. And even the churches were more focused on anti-birth control uh, activism, as was the medical profession, again, because they wanted to exercise control over all aspects of women's health. And if a woman can manage her reproductive interests through buying stuff at the local drugstore, the doctors lost control. This was through the Depression, of course, and the war years when you can imagine for different reasons the demand for abortion was very high. And this is when Ruth Barnett comes on the scene, and she was trained by uh, George Watts, the guy who invented the suction technique, and she became the premier abortionist of the Northwest, very flamboyant figure. During her roughly four-decade career, provided something like 40,000 abortions and had no deaths during that time. She was a remarkable practitioner, extremely careful and skilled. And what I remember from the novel, which I assume is true to history, was that she also provided care gratis to people who couldn't afford. Women yes. would come in, poor women, and she considered this a, an important service. Oh, yeah. And she would sometimes even go down into the seedier parts of town and provide abortions to prostitutes, which is a nice segue into the last thing that I want to talk about briefly is the rise of organized crime during World War II. And in fact, we had a very corrupt mayor at that time, Earl Riley, and that 
in fact, was what brought Dottie Lee, Dottie Duguid Lee, into power as an anti-corruption candidate. And she was the one who then orchestrated a crackdown on gambling, drug trafficking, bootlegging, prostitution, and eventually in 1951 started raiding the abortion providers. And this, of course, was in the context of the post-war pronatalist views and the push to get women out of the workplace, back into the kitchens, back into the nurseries, producing babies. And that's what's meant by pronatalist, of course, is yes. producing more and more babies. So the consequence of that is that the, the licensed practitioners fled the field. Abortion was pushed into the back alley. The complication rates soared. And then, of course, everyone kind of knows the history from there with the rise of feminism in the 1960s and the campaigns for abortion rights that eventually led up to Roe v. Wade. Okay, that's the history. Did you want to say anything more about the social economic factors? Well, I think the, they played out mostly during the Depression when women would um, be fired if they were pregnant. They were losing jobs at a greater rate than men. The marriage rate plummeted. People couldn't afford babies. And when women got pregnant, they very often just did not have the means to have another child. During the war, they didn't want to have babies because they wanted to go to work. And then after the war, of course, there was the push to produce more babies, get women out of the workplace. And so correlates very much with the crackdown on abortion. Okay, you've taken us to Roe v. Wade. Bring us to the present. What, what do we make of all that history? What's the significance of it? What are the lessons for now, this attempt again to put women back in the home and the kitchen? And I want to emphasize the fact that how safe and accessible abortion is does not coincide exactly with its legality and that there are many more forces at play during this era when it is increasingly illegal. It's important to understand, I think, whose interests are served by having abortion legal and what kinds of messages might resonate with different groups? What, what is the most strategic way to organize for abortion rights? And to recognize that the local environment plays a huge role. And the activism has to be tailored to where you're at. These sound like criteria that would apply to every form of activism. True. And of course, it'd be great if the struggle around abortion, the struggle for female empowerment were also part of, of course, the larger struggle for all of all of the kinds of grievances, all the kind of, of alternative vision that we have. I've been talking with Patricia Kohlberg. Thanks again, Patricia. This is Norm Diamond for the Old Mole Variety Hour. Thank you, Norm. Don't lie to me about I love your wives when the rich have access and the working class dies. This a call in for all of us to unite. Intersection of identities and plight Fight for the right to choose when to give life This is sacred knowledge and it's our birthright I am J-Row Our love for our children is not on trial Every child is a wanted child